Welcome to a new podcast series, The Growing Pandemic, How Innovation and Collaboration Can End Alzheimer's. Brought to you by the Global CEO Initiative on Alzheimer's Disease, or CEOI, this podcast series explores opportunities to accelerate our fight against Alzheimer's disease shared during the 2020 Lausanne Workshop. This convening, held each year in Lausanne, Switzerland, is the world's leading stage for global dialogue on how to speed new innovations in prevention, treatment, and care to those impacted by Alzheimer's. CEOI is an organization of private sector leaders who have joined together to provide business leadership in the fight against Alzheimer's, a growing pandemic that threatens to devastate communities, national health systems, and the global economy if we fail to act. In Episode 2, we'll discuss emerging diagnostic breakthroughs with the potential to speed the detection and diagnosis of Alzheimer's. Innovation and collaboration are essential to advance a range of diagnostic modalities and use them together to dramatically reduce the time and expense required for diagnosis. This early, accurate diagnosis is the only way to ensure the right patients receive the right therapies at the right time. Husseini Manji, Global Head, Science for Minds, Johnson & Johnson, is joined by leading experts and innovators in diagnostic science. Mark Mintum, Vice President of Pain and Neurodegeneration Research and Clinical Development at Eli Lilly & Company and President of Avid Radio Pharmaceuticals, Inc. Stephen Verduner, CEO of Neurovision Imaging. Richard Pither, CEO of Cytox. Rianne Esquivel, Science Affairs Manager at Fuji Rebio. Tobias Bittner, Franchise Lead for Alzheimer's Disease Biomarkers at Roche and Genentech. Joel Bronstein, CEO of C2N Diagnostics. Together they share their perspectives on the most important recent developments for diagnostics, how different diagnostic modalities can be used in a combination approach, and what it will take to deploy and scale these innovations. Please note that the opinions expressed by participants are their own and do not necessarily reflect the positions of the organizations they represent. I think what most of us believe that it's almost a truism that even when we have drugs to the right targets underlying disease biology, we won't make enough progress unless we have the ability to firstly identify individuals who are early on in the disease process where these treatments will have the greatest benefit. To be able to fully understand patient heterogeneity in terms of their underlying disease biology so we can target the right treatments for the right patients. To be able to understand different patients' rate of progression so that we can design clinical studies appropriately. And finally, to have measures that may tell us if our treatments are having their desired biological effects without having to wait extensive periods of time to measure cognitive changes only. So in that context, I'm really delighted to be able to moderate today's outstanding panel, where we brought together some of the world's leading scientists involved in biomarkers and diagnostics in dementia. As you will hear, these individuals and their companies are making tremendous progress in numerous complementary modalities, which includes genomics, fluid biomarkers, and retinal and brain imaging. 
And what I'd like to do is ask each of you some questions about your and your company's exciting work. And following that, we'll have an overall roundtable discussion. So perhaps I could start with Mark Minton. Mark, I think you know your organization has been doing some tremendous work related to pet tracers. Avid Radio Pharmaceuticals is, has focused, no surprise, on the two characteristic pathologies of Alzheimer's disease, imaging the amyloid plaques and imaging the tau tangles. The amyloid tracer is, eight years ago, has sort of been approved. It's on the market. So it's through that first stage, it built out. And what we probably focusing on now is that key question of, of overcoming the barriers. How is it being used? How is it being interpreted? You know, we were very proud to participate in the IDEAS study co-sponsored by the Alzheimer's Association as well as Medicare, CMS, and other manufacturers of tracers where the largest Alzheimer's trial, 18,000 people, and it did an amazing job of essentially doubled the hypothetical rate for how it's going to change management and diagnosis. I think one of the really key things that we learned is, and you're getting to it already, there's a lot of resistance, and say this in a good way, I'm amazed that the medical community overestimates how good they are at diagnosing Alzheimer's disease and underestimates how good physicians who are taking care of patients and patients and their families can handle the information. I think they really want this information. They really need this information. And when they get it, it changes behavior. It changes lives. So I think one of our biggest obstacles is overcoming that odd double resistance of thinking we don't quite need it, and second, underestimating how much of patients and families can use it. Right, very well said. And I fully agree with your comment about you know, the very important value of diagnostics and how we collectively need to work as a society. Steve, I think one of the things your group has been doing is some innovative work in retinal scanning technology. So what we do is we have non-invasive devices that directly image amyloid in the retina. So maybe a little bit different than blood where we also play, but we directly image amyloid. We know what the morphology looks like. We've done numerous basic science studies, and then we have 24 devices around the world where we're doing clinical studies to further validate this. Basically, we're directly imaging the retina non-invasively with devices that go through a dilated pupil, those results are sent up to the cloud, they're processed, and then results are set. And essentially, think of it as a screen to pet. So we come up with a score. There's a model that we have that we've proven over and over again that we have a reasonably good predictive value. The other aspect that we see in retina is retinal vasculature. So this gives us some clue with respect to vascular conditions in the eye, perhaps one day generating a vascular index, looking at mixed dementias, vascular dementia. So ultimately, a screen to pet may be in combination with blood. I think it's an exciting time in terms of, you know, brain imaging, retinal imaging, CSF, blood, polygenic risk scores. So maybe you could talk a little bit about what your group is doing related to fluid assay and also how you can, you're starting to envision sort of combination approaches as a, perhaps even as a screening funnel. We basically, a few years ago, licensed a platform that uses magnetic nanoparticles for detection. So that allows us to multiplex with very small volume of blood, ultra-high sensitivity. We don't have as much matrix interference as other things. So it gives us some distinct advantages for low-abundance targets. And also, really, to your point, it's really to create a biosignature. So one can envision an ATN chip, which is what we're looking on, that's looking at amyloid tau 
and neurodegeneration, three flavors of P-tau, total tau, GFAP, neurofilament light, you know, all on a chip in a very small volume of blood. And so we think that this combination approach and creating a biosignature ultimately serves the industry well. So it's, I think, very important that we all pivot and think about a combination biomarker approach and getting FDA and pharmaceutical companies to embrace that type of approach. Some already are and doing a very good job of it. We're making really excellent progress. We've done a lot of optimization and analytical validation. We're running clinical samples. We're getting good results and, you know, stay tuned for 2021. So we're, you know, cautiously optimistic. We all know that Alzheimer's disease, you know, like most diseases, is multifactorial. And what we mean by that is a strong genetic influence. And then there's other non-direct genetic influences. But we really need to get a handle on the genetic risk to enable earlier intervention and increase knowledge about disease progression. And Richard's group has been doing some terrific work related to what we call polygenic risk scores. So what a polygenic risk score does, it scans the whole genome and it adds up all the risk associated and all the protective variants into a single score. That assessment can be made at any age. So potentially, individuals can be identified very early, many, many years before symptoms or even biomarkers become apparent in CSF or plasma, which allows you to then plot out effectively a course of diagnostic monitoring for a particular individual with a view then to bringing them into clinical trials at the right time or indeed managing their, their healthcare requirements in a, in a very timely fashion. We do know that taking lifestyle and risk avoidance strategies very early on is a very effective way to reduce or push out the time when symptoms might become apparent. So our proposition with, with GenoScore, which takes into account the polygenic component as well as age and gender, is actually to work very much in collaboration with organizations developing more biodynamic markers, be they imaging, CSF or, or blood-based markers, to pull together two of those very important features in the overall stratification of those at risk for developing the disease ultimately. Yeah, thank you very much for the great comments. And I think it's important that you alluded to lifestyle factors as well. I think what Richard's group is alluding to is if you have a polygenic risk score, the good news is that the, most of these risk genes are what we call probabilistic, not deterministic. I think um, those of you who've been with the Lausanne dialogue since the um, beginning today have heard that, you know, unfortunately, COVID-19 has made, you know, things so challenging for so many people and unfortunately caused such a devastation for so many families. But there have been some, you know, I'm almost hesitant to call it benefits, but new ways of working that society is being forced into. So I was also wondering if you could tell us a little bit about your approach to getting data as it relates to remote assessment, particularly during this time of COVID-19. What we do is provide DNA testing from a mouth swab sample if blood's not readily available. And of course, mouth swab kits are very readily available and can be sent to people in their own homes. But of course, two things you need to be able to do this type of remote assessment. One, a very robust collection strategy which, you know, via these FDA-approved kits, for example. And the other is a very stable analyte. It's really been a, a huge opportunity, I would say, to extol the virtues of these types of approaches during the, the COVID pandemic and probably beyond. Next, I'd like to turn to Rianne and your exciting work your group is undertaking. The best of my knowledge, you just received breakthrough status and are submitting to the FDA at the end of the year for your CSF biomarker for the amyloid ratio. 
We actually just submitted the data for our CSF amyloid ratio to the FDA mid-November, actually. So we expect to hear some news the first quarter of 2021. We're very excited. All four of those biomarkers for amyloid and tau are CE marked as well. So they've been run frequently across Europe. And so our FDA submission for the amyloid ratio is really the culmination of years of research into those four markers. A-beta-42 alone is a notoriously difficult protein to work with in the lab, and the ratio can really normalize some of those pre-analytical issues and help to allow for a single cutoff that could be consistently applied across these laboratories across the U.S. There seems to be a reasonable amount of difference geographically in the ability to do CSF measures and Obviously, most of us think of it as something that could really advance the field, but there are different geographical, my understanding, different geographical views on that. I think the really important thing is really speaking to neurologists, general practitioners as well, and getting them to understand more about lumbar punctures and the safety associated with those, as well as the complications that are associated with CSF collection really just having a consistent protocol across these labs is really critical to being able to have consistent diagnostic results. Absolutely. We're going to really focus on with our final presenters is the impact of plasma, which in my opinion has been one of the really exciting developments in Alzheimer's in recent years. But just wondering what your plans are for advancing plasma measures. Definitely. And our plasma is a little bit behind CSF just in terms of the research and development and the, the performance of the markers in plasma because there's such a low amount of protein in the plasma versus the CSF. So we've really, we've really seen a lot of progress in just the last year or two across platforms with plasma. So we kind of see it like a funnel to CSF and PET testing where you know, you, you can narrow those patients down that really need that CSF or PET validation for a final amyloid diagnosis. But also, as Mark mentioned, until these markers are, or PET is reimbursed, they're very expensive for the average patient for PET testing. And so CSF can represent an economical option for those patients as well until there is PET reimbursement. Tobias, I'd now like to turn to you. So your group is doing some very elegant work with fully automated plasma assays as screening tests. Why don't you tell us more about that? Right now, so they are at a stage where we call them robust prototype assays. So we have faith in their performance. They're not in vitro diagnostics yet, but they're good enough to run on prestigious and well-characterized clinical cohorts. And that's what we have embarked on for the last couple of months and also for one or two years. And so we're looking at their data and trying to define the ideal use cases, first of all. And then the second thing is also we're at the moment looking into defining cut points and also defining combinations of these assays that would give us the highest performance possible so that these assays might eventually not just be used as pre-screening markers, but then also maybe eventually replace CSF and PET testing, because I think that's what we are all striving for. Now I'd finally like to turn to Joe, and I think it's a very exciting time for you and your company. Uh, I'm wondering if you could share the data of the latest validation for your platform and your vision for post-FDA approval. Our test is our, the test that we just launched, and we believe it's the first blood test to reach the commercial market in the world for use in the clinical setting. 
it's one thing to have a really well analytically validated assay, but you also have to demonstrate the clinical validity. And so that work is the product of about four or five years of clinical studies. The clinical data set that we felt very confident in launching this product into the clinic was based upon two studies. One, which Mark already alluded to, the IDEA study. And what C2N did was we actually performed a sub-study from patients and ideas. And using the blood technique, we analyzed those samples and we were able to correlate the blood measurements with the amyloid readouts that were evaluated under ideas. We centralized that process and we had a standardized amyloid interpretation by a vendor that is very experienced in centralized reviews. This was very important. We introduced the test a few weeks ago and it's early, but what we've observed is a tremendous, tremendous outpouring of interest from both physicians and patients. I think we have to be much more progressive and say patients want to be informed. When patients are informed about their healthcare, they are more proactive. We understand that this is likely to be a multimodal approach. There's going to be a need for not only plasma-based biomarkers, but some of the other biomarkers that have been discussed here, and the ability to measure additional analytes that will help inform about really provide a compelling picture of what the patient's brain health looks like. So, you know, we believe that we can detect amyloid pathology very early, but that's only one part of the puzzle. I'd now like to segue into sort of a roundtable discussion with many of you touched on how combination approaches may fit into the ecosystem. So maybe we could expand a little bit on that. Rianne, maybe I could start with you. How do you see some of the work your company is developing fitting into the ecosystem with other approaches? I think that, you know, there's just so many options for these combination approaches. One of them I mentioned was plasma being a funnel for CSF and PET testing but also, you know, genetic testing and being higher risk and then starting to develop those memory problems. And then that leading you to want further diagnostic testing is critical. And in addition to that, not just having the the initial diagnostic test, but also having those progression markers like PTAL, where you can really watch those disease-modifying therapies and, and see if they're actually helping the patient or if they should switch to another drug. Of course, those are all future future hopes and dreams. And Steve, the same question, if you don't mind, how do you see combination approaches? I see it two ways. One is amongst multiple blood biomarkers to the points that Rian just made with respect to how we combine those intelligently, making sure we don't overfit data, you know, when we're trying to produce results. The other is in combination with retina. If we want to ultimately get to a point, to Tobias's point, where we may want to long in the future replace PET, if that's possible, if we can get our performance well into the 90s by this combination approach. Mark, your company is one of the pioneers in brain PET imaging. Also, I want to ask you the same question, how you see the potential linkage or synergies of some of these combination approaches with brain imaging? While the uh, PET studies are often sort of the gold standard and have some of the most compelling evidence for comparison to pathology, the very, very practical nature of getting that out there and the cost and, and the greater expense means that the blood tests in particular should be able to offer so much in the way of a much, much broader funnel. 
But the reality of, of blood tests like this is that there will be the really, really obviously negative people, which we hope will mean very low chance of having pathology and the really obviously high, which will have a very high chance. But we've got to, I think, be very transparent as companies and as a community to what the real data is for being in between and being uncertain. There's going to be gray zones on these types of tests, and we need to talk about what happens to people in those gray zones. And if we define them and are transparent as we get this data, and so as people develop data sets and get LDTs on the market, the more that we can actually see the actual raw data and understand how many people were in the intermediate zone, what happened to them, I think that'll be key to building this combination, this funnel really having a scientifically data-led funnel for our um, both clinical use and, and clinical trial use. As we said earlier, obviously COVID-19 has been devastating, but are there any lessons from COVID-19 that we can sort of take, you know, for example, opportunities to accelerate clinical trials or cut out bureaucracy that can bring to the dementia field? Yeah, I, <laughs> it, it has made us think long and hard. I think one of the you know, one of the things that's been alluded to is the more we can be creative about doing decentralized trials where we don't require back and forth to a CMO or some sort of CRO site for the investigator site for the patient, the more we can do in their house, blood tests would just be huge in being able to screen for patients and they don't even have to, to leave their home. If there was a nurse, these remote ways of doing cognitive assessments and functional assessments would be huge. Where do you think we are and what one action do you think we should take to produce the greatest result for, you know, making a difference for humanity? And maybe I'll start with you, Joe. I think that we're now in the field of neurology and Alzheimer's disease specifically, we're now embarking on a time where we're going to be able to predict and identify the earliest beginnings of pathology 10, 15, 20 years before the onset of symptoms. That is absolutely profound. And if we can draw some parallels to what happened in cardiovascular medicine, when that happened, we were able to reduce long-term cardiac events by 50% because we were able to intervene earlier. Thank you, thank you, very well said. Tobias, same thing, final comments and a call to action. I think our main goal is to transform the diagnostic pathway to make it less complicated, more cost-effective. Blood biomarkers play an important role here, also empowering the GP to actually front-load some of the activities that are currently being done in clinics. But I still want to caution that uh, and manage expectations because I do think that it will take another five to 10 years before we have really high-quality assays that can be used in clinical routine on a very large scale globally. Rianne, your call to action? Sure, and I agree with Tobias and Joel, just having cost-effective, robust, accurate, high-performing diagnostics for patients, but also the most important thing is educating these practitioners and neurologists about how the diagnostics can, and biomarkers can provide value to their patients and how to use the biomarkers and pet tracers properly. Potential new Alzheimer's therapies, including disease-modifying treatments, will only make a difference if people can access accurate diagnosis early in the course of the disease. Innovators are working to make this promise a reality. It will require that the Alzheimer's field develops, refines, and validates a range of diagnostic modalities. 
collaborates to understand how different modalities can be used in combination, works with health systems, providers, payers, and policymakers to streamline the diagnostic process, scales findings and best practices around the world while matching solutions to the resources available in each setting. These are the building blocks for early, accurate diagnosis to speed progress against Alzheimer's disease, the growing pandemic. Thanks for listening. To learn more about the Lausanne Workshop and the Global CEO Initiative on Alzheimer's Disease, please visit usagainstalzheimers.org.